So then, out of the uh, very violent, rebellious, dark times that we read of in the book of Judges, it's at that time or out of that context comes what is one of the most beautiful stories in the Bible, the story of Ruth. Judges was an ongoing cycle, as we heard last week, of history repeating itself of sin and uh, being called back by a judge, being forgiven and restored for more sin. And and so they went round the cycle uh, as they went more and more and more in on themselves as a nation. Uh, And that, in the end, was the trouble of the time of the judges. The people of God had lost sight of their purpose And when you lose sight of your purpose, inertia sets in. You look in yourself, uh, towards yourself, and a a community begins to squabble, to quarrel, to find things to bicker about or to be anxious over. Uh, And that was the period of the judges. Without an external focus, without a purpose, they squabbled, they bickered, and there was infighting and all the rest. Why is it at times of crisis or at times of war, a nation nation unites in a special and unique way because there is an outside purpose that together they can focus on. When the church loses its purpose, loses its outside focus, we begin to bicker about all kinds of ridiculous things and we've become specialists at it over the centuries. They'd lost their purpose. And the book of Ruth, amongst other things, was a reminder of their purpose. What were they there for? Well, what was it? What were they there for? That's not a rhetorical question. What were they there for? Why was the nation there? What was God's plan? What was the intention? Thank you, Linda, to bless the other nations. And how do we know that was God's plan? Because he said so. Where did he say that that was his plan? Genesis and Abraham. There's two people in the house. Remember that? Five or six weeks ago, we looked at Abraham, and God says, look, I'm going to bless you, and from you there's going to be a nation that's going to be blessed. Why? What was the whole point? The whole point was that that blessed nation might become a blessing to all the nations around the world. And the very final phrase, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. That was God's purpose for them to be a conduit of God's blessing. No wonder the book of Judges was such a dark period because they'd lost sight of their purpose and so they squabbled and they bickered and they fought with one another and indeed with the uh, little skirmishes, the little nations uh, around them. The book of Ruth is a reminder of their purpose, of our purpose. It's still God's purpose to bless you that you might be a Blessing, on a scale of 1 to 10, how much of a blessing are you? To your spouse? To your children? To your parents? To your neighbours? To the people that you work with? 
That's the purpose. That's why you're here. That's what it's all about. And the book of Ruth is such a stark reminder of their purpose because God was going to take a woman from Moab, the sexually perverted, child-sacrificing, idol-worshipping, debauched nation Moab. He would take a woman from there and she would find blessing and hope and love and rescue and restoration amongst the people of God. It struck me again as I was reading Ruth this morning that actually it wasn't the people of God at large that in the end were a blessing to Ruth. It was one man, Boaz. We cannot say the church is here to be a blessing to the nations. We are here to bless those around us unless it's about you and me, the the one person that will make that happen, the one person that will turn the ideal into a reality, the one person who will take it seriously, as we'll discover Boaz did. It's as if God's saying, remember your purpose. Remember what you're here for. It's also the book of Ruth, as if God's saying, uh, remember what I'm like. Remember what I'm like. You see, one of the dominant themes of the book of Ruth is loving kindness. There's a little Hebrew word called hesed, H-E-S-E-D, hesed, which is the Old Testament equivalent of the Greek word agape. Now, you'll have heard people say at length, I suspect, about how agape was this word in the New Testament to talk of God's love that was unlike any other kind of love. It was self-giving, it was sacrificial, it was much deeper and greater in friendship and all of that stuff, yeah? Agape. The Bible, the Old Testament, has, a, has a, an equivalent word, hesed, meaning loving kindness. And it's the way that God is spoken of right through the Old Testament. And it's the word that's used here to talk about each of the different kinds of human relationships in the story and ultimately used to talk about the way God deals with us, loving kindness. And so way back in Exodus... They would refer to God and his revelation as being about this hesed, this loving kindness. God who is slow to anger there in the middle, abounding in love and faithfulness, abounding in hesed, faithful, sorry, and faithfulness, maintaining hesed, loving kindness to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and so on. It was a reminder of what God was like. And they used to read the book of Ruth every time they celebrated the giving of the law. They would read the book of Ruth right through out loud. Why? Why did they feel the need to read this book when they were celebrating the giving of the law? Probably, I suspect, because human nature is always thus. God gives something good and beautiful and we reduce it to something ugly and a shadow of its former self. 
The law was good and beautiful. Can you remember the context in which God gave the law? He, he'd, he'd gone to Abraham and he'd said, I'm going to love you and I'm going to make a relationship with you. You've got nothing to offer. I'm going to do everything. God alone walked through the sacrifice. You may remember those weeks ago. You've got nothing to offer. This is all about me. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to gather a nation around you. I'm going to bless them. Then when they were down in Egypt, God said, I'm going to come and I'm going to rescue you. I'm going to deliver you. I'm going to make a way through the Red Sea. Then I'm going to provide through you for you through the wilderness. All grace, all God's doing. They'd done nothing to deserve it, had nothing to offer. Then God said, look, I've given you all this, and I want you to live well in the land of blessing, the land that I am giving you. I'm a loving father, and I want you to live in this benevolent, loving, hesed kind of way. Therefore, don't murder, and don't honor the sanctity of life. And honor the trust of marriage. Don't, don't uh, uh, be jealous for your neighbor's wife or, or your neighbor's ox for that matter, assuming you can tell between the two. Uh, honor and live well in the land. And so this beautiful pattern for living in God's world that would reflect his beauty and the sanctity of life, the sanctity of marriage, that the reached out to the poor and the oppressed, all there in Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers. Maybe they knew that so easily we would take something beautiful like that, like the religious people do, They turn those laws into things you have to do to be acceptable. What claptrap is that? If ever I've heard it, what a distortion of the Bible that those are things you have to do to be accepted. The Bible never says that. Remember all that God did. Then this is a new pattern to live in the new way. And then you get the control freaks who say this is, these are just arbitrary rules by a totalitarian God who just wants to snatch any fun you might have from you. And then there's the liberals that say, well, that this is all old, old stuff that has no relevance today. We can chuck it all out. And so they'd read the book of Ruth and say, no, you must remember this way to live comes from a father who is hesed to you who embraces you with loving kindness, whose hand reaches out to you day after day, moment after moment. And so it was a reminder of what God was like. And then thirdly, it was a reminder of what God will do. A reminder of what God will do. The hero in the, the human hero in the story is a man named Boaz, who pays the price for a field, for the land, in order to win back the woman who he then marries. It was a wedding. I thought you liked weddings. It's a wedding. And it looked forward to another wedding. There will be another wedding. Whose wedding will that be? Who's the bride? Who's the bride in the final wedding? The church. We are. That's right. We're the bride. So we identify with Ruth, who's being redeemed by a man named Boaz. We are the bride. We lived in Moab. And you'll understand why I'm saying that in a few moments. We identify with Ruth. 
And then there's this redeemer. He's not a close relative. He couldn't be bothered. But a distant relative, someone from a far place, if you like, someone from heaven came to earth, flesh and blood to be our relative. His name is Jesus, who will redeem us and he will redeem the land. The whole of creation waits, is in longing for the day when the land and the people will be redeemed. This book's about you and me, but more, it's about what God will do. Hallelujah. And that's why 3,000 years ago, this story tucked away in ancient Israel speaks right into our lives, right into our situation. And in a beautiful way, the Holy Spirit hovers over the words with so many illusions to what God will one day do. Who's the bride? We are. It's the land, it's the earth's. That the kinsman redeemer will come and save and rescue. Okie doke, I'd like to get into the detail of the story because it works on that level. That's the big, the meta-narrative, the, the big story. Where does it fit into the big picture? But the detail is outstanding in, and has so much to teach us in so many ways. So uh, uh, turn with me, would you, to the book of Ruth, to page 267, uh, and let's just uh, glean, no pun intended, glean, get it? No. It's going to be a long morning. You say, it already is a long morning. What's he talking about? It's going to be a long morning. Page 267, the book of Ruth. In those days when the judges ruled, there was a famine. Huh? What? A famine in the land? This is the land of blessing. This is the land where God promised abundance. Why is there a famine in the land? Because in Deuteronomy, God says, I will make this a land of abundance when you obey me. What's going on here? Obedience or rebellion? Rebellion, right, okay, on the same page. Here we go. Book of Ruth begins with rebellion. In the cycle of the judges, in a time of rebellion, the land is in famine. And a man from Bethlehem, Heard of that place? Anything significant happened in Bethlehem? Is that fluky, do you think? Or did God work all this out? What do you think? You can be the judge of that. Bethlehem means house of bread. Bit of a bummer to have a famine when you live in a house of bread. But that's where they were. Together with his wife and two sons, the man whose name it says in verse 2 was Elimelech, went to live in the country of Moab. Now, Elimelech means my God is king. That's a great name, isn't it? And they were given names with true meanings. That was what he was called to live up to, that his God was king, that his God would sort everything out, that his God ruled above the heavens and the earth, that his God ruled over the famines and the droughts, as well as the time of plenty. But he's in a right pickle. And one of the reasons you know that Elimelech is in a right pickle is he has two sons, Malon and Kilian. Malon means sicko and Kilion means dying. You're not in a good place when you give those names to your sons. You call them in for tea. Come on, sicko. Bring dying with you. Okay, whatever's going on, Elimelech is not in a great place. Agreed? Okay, it's a time of rebellion. Elimelech's not in a great place. Is he angry with God? Why this judgment again? Why can't you just bless us? Was he responsible for the rebellion? We don't know. 
but he's in a bad place. And when you're under pressure, and when you're in a bad place, you make bad choices sometimes, don't you? Elimelech is about to make a terrible choice. He takes his family to go and live in Moab. Now, the Jewish writer and every person, Jew, reading these words would have gone, "Uh uh-oh, that won't end well. Uh Uh-oh, not Moab. Moab, the sexually perverted, the child sacrificing, the idol worshipping debauched nation. Yeah, that Moab. He took it, what? He took his family to Moab? You see, you could argue that for economic reasons, there was a famine in Bethlehem, and he took his family quite literally out of the frying pan and into the fire. Not Moab. You see, he made an economic choice with no regard to the spiritual consequences. That's a very big mistake. And it's easy to make, isn't it? In this world that's all about stuff and what we need, to make an economic choice, unaware of the spiritual implications, is a very bad mistake. This is not a clever leader of his family. Elimelech leads them to Moab. When you lead your family away from God, there's only one thing that happens. Ultimately, it's death. Because that's what comes when you walk away from God. Bible's very clear. God's a source of life. You walk away from the source of life, you head towards death. And so they went there with their two sons. Now Elimelech, verse 3, Naomi's husband, died. Oh, (laughs) there's a surprise. The first Jewish readers would have thought to themselves. Tell us something we don't know. And she was left with her two sons. Verse 4, they married Moabite women. So things went well for a little while. One named Orpah and the other Ruth. Just out of interest, Ruth married Sicko and Orpah married Dying. The great wedding that was. Do you, Sicko, take... Sorry, getting carried away. Verse 5, both Malon and Kilion lived up to their names and they died. Yeah, blimey. Okay, pause. Be sorry for Naomi for a moment. This is a very tough gig. She's lost her husband. She's lost her two sons. And she's left with her daughters-in-law. Daughters-in-law, mother-in-laws. Who got the best deal? I don't know. Notice the progression. And I want to ask the question, is there any hope? Is there any hope when you make some catastrophic choices? Is there any hope when under pressure you walk away from God instead of clinging to him for all your worth? That's what Elimelech did. He said, it wasn't just geography. You see, Elimelech in walking away, walking out of the land of promise, was essentially saying, I've had enough of God and his promises and all this talk of blessing. I'm out of here. I'm in search of a different life. Thank you. I've had it. I'm off. What happens when you make that kind of choice under economic pressure? And is there any hope? Well, notice the progression. Verses 1 to 5 has taken us step by step away from God. We started in the house of Bethlehem, the house of blessing, and we've ended up in Moab. We started with lives. We've ended up with many deaths. Every step, we've had our back to God. We've been walking away. Verse 6 is the turning point. Naomi, for the first time, or at least the first time we're aware of, turns her thoughts to God. And it's going to lead to a journey that takes them back to God and all the way to Jesus in the final verse. That's a pretty good journey, isn't it? Now, uh, 
when she heard in Moab, verse 6, that the Lord had come to the aid of his people, well, of course, the Lord always comes to the aid of his people. Is that true? The Lord always, always comes to the aid of his people. She said, oh, if only... Why did we ever leave Bethlehem? Why did we ever turn our back on God? If only, if only, when she heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them, Naomi and her daughters-in-law prepared to return home from there. This is a prodigal son moment. She's in her proverbial pigsty, and she's thinking, I don't know what will happen if I go home. I don't know whether my friends will accept me. I don't know whether my family will accept me. I don't know what God will say, whether he'll accept me, but it's got to be better than this. I'm going to make my way home. He's my only hope. That's the best decision you can make when you're in Moab. Head for home. He's your only hope. You're absolutely right. And so she gathers the the, bits together, gathers Ruth and Oprah together, and they set off on the long journey home. Three women on a journey. There's going to be some talking, isn't there? That was a cheap jive, wasn't it? Funny, but cheap and low. Plenty more of those. Uh, So she's heading back to to Bethlehem, and they get chatting away about life and everything. Her hearts are heavy. And and, and Naomi says, look, look, girls, ladies, look, go back. Go back to Moab. Look, you come with me to Bethlehem, I I can't offer you another husband. I've got no children in my womb. I haven't even got a husband myself. Even if I find a husband, you're going to hang around for 20-odd years while while, while they grow up, and uh, and then you're going to marry them. Look, go go back home. Find yourself a husband. Start a new family. uh, Have children. Settle down. Go home. I've got nothing for you. Oprah says, yeah, all right, I'm off. And uh, I'm putting it a bit shallow really, they wept and they hugged and they embraced, this was a big moment but Oprah essentially says are you an Oprah or a Ruth? Oprah essentially says I'm going to go back to what I know I'm going to go back to what I know Ruth says Naomi, I'm not going anywhere Ruth says, Naomi, I love you. You are my mother-in-law. I'm going to stay with you. More than that, Ruth says, Naomi, I want what you have lost. Naomi, for the first time, I've seen hope in your eyes as we're heading back to Bethlehem. I've seen a a light, a spark in your spirit that had long been gone. Naomi, I want what you've got. I'm going to be with you, and I want to be with your people, and ultimately, I want want your God to be my God. And she says it very beautifully and very poetically uh, in verse 16. Don't urge me to leave you or turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God will be my God. I've had enough, as much as I can cope with in Moab. I want what's rekindled hope in you. I want to find with you, Naomi, what you lost when you came away from the place of blessing. And so they make their way home. Verse 19, they get back to Bethlehem. So the two women went on until they called to Beth, came to Bethlehem. When they arrived in Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women exclaimed, can this be Naomi? Man, she was looking rough by now. Hey, ten years, lost her husband, lost her sons. And she says, yeah, you're right, it is Naomi, and things have changed. I don't want you to call me Naomi anymore, which means pleasant. I want you to call me Mara, which means bitter. 
And why am I bitter? I'm going to tell you. Because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. Who does she blame for what's happened? Who does she blame? God. Is it really God's fault? No. You ever blame God for something that isn't really his fault? So you understand how Naomi feels. She's angry. She's bitter. And she's blaming God. She's shouting at him. And maybe you want to write Naomi off because you think her theology is all messed up. For a moment, her theology might be all messed up. But she's done two really good things. She's angry with God. And firstly, she's honest about it. You see, there'll be several of us here, if we're average, more than several, that are angry with God about things that have happened in their lives, and they say, it's all fine, praise the Lord. Because you do not think you can be angry, certainly not at God. Listen, God's big enough for your anger. Okay, God's big, listen, God's big enough for you to shout and kick and scream, even if it's not his fault. And the people of God need to be big enough for that as well. Amen? Now, I'm bitter. She's doing two good things. She's come back to God's people, and she's honest about where we are, where she is. And maybe that's it for some of us this morning. That's all you need to hear. Suddenly, as I'm speaking, you're going, bing, that's it. I'm angry, and I'm angry with God, and I, and I know I can't share it. I shouldn't say that in church, and I, I can't say that to Christians because they'll think I'm mad. How can I be angry at God? He's supposed to be loving, but I'm livid. Do two things. Find someone you can trust and share it with them. And if, um, if they slap you, slap them back. No, just come and tell me about it, and we'll sort it out. Hey, she's, ah, she's bitter. And she's coming back to God's people. She's saying, look, I need some help around here. You know? There's too much honest, uh, there's too much pretense in churches, isn't there? You know, hey, I'm good, thanks. How are you? She goes, no, I'm, I look wrecked, and I am wrecked. I'm bitter. I'm bitter. So, notice, as we begin chapter 2, a bit like the prodigal son, when the prodigal son started to go home, the father was what? Waiting. As Ruth and Naomi make their way home, Father God is not only waiting, he's been getting things ready. He's been organizing some of the pieces. He's been organizing some of the people. He's been making plans. Isn't that fantastic? When you've been lost in Moab, God's been making plans for your return. Hallelujah. So they begin, beginning of chapter 2, uh, sorry, the last verse in, in chapter uh, uh, 1 gives us this clue. So they arrive... As the barley harvest was beginning. What a coincidence. Why is that so important? Naomi and Ruth come back to Bethlehem destitute. They've got no money, they've got no food, they've got no home. They desperately need some income. One of God's provisions to help the poor and the oppressed was at the time of harvest to ask the workers to leave parts of the field, the corners, unharvested, so the poor, the oppressed, the widows and the orphans could come and gather and harvest and glean food for their table. So Naomi and Ruth come back just at the time Father God has made provision for their feeding and for their protection. It's a beautiful thing. But that's not the only thing 
Verse 2, Ruth says, well, we've got no money. I've got to go out into the field and glean. So Ruth the Moabitess said to Naomi, let me go to the fields and pick up the leftover grain behind anyone in whose eyes I've found favor. Naomi said to her, go ahead, my daughter. So she went out and began to glean in the fields behind the harvesters. Now, Bethlehem was called the house of bread. Fields all around, harvest fields everywhere. And I love the way the Bible says, as it turned out, wink, wink, nudge, nudge, could God be at work here? Stand back, take a look. As it turned out, she found herself working in the field belonging to Boaz, who was from the clan of Elimelech, a distant relative. Just then, wink, wink, nudge, nudge, as it would just appear, turn out, what a coincidence, just then Boaz, who Lee, who is the, the, the business uh, head of this whole harvesting enterprise for the fields that he owns, came in from the big town out to the field. He just so happened to come out to that particular field. Just then Boaz arrived from Bethlehem and greeted the harvesters. The Lord be with you. That's a greeting from a boss, isn't it? Hands up if you have a boss like that tomorrow morning. The Lord be with you. And then the rest of the, the, the office floor reply, and also with you. Doesn't happen here either. It just so happens, verse 5, okay, another little coincidence, that Boaz sees Ruth and thinks, aha, aha, who's this in my field? and takes a special interest in her. The foreman replied, she's the Moabite who came back from Moab with Naomi. Uh, uh, just so happens that Naomi, uh, Boaz's heart is touched, and he, he says, well, 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 she's quite, she's quite nice. Oh, I'm reading a little bit into it, but you'll see why in a minute. Uh, and they will, let her, let her take as much as she wants. In fact, say to her, she must only come to our fields, and you men, you keep your hands off. Make sure she's protected. Make sure she's looked after. Okay, so it just so happens, and it just so happens, and it just so happens, and it just so happens. You know, God works in this world in two ways. He works in the miraculous way, and sometimes we see that, praise him. And he works in a providential way. And if we've got eyes to see, we'll see that also all of the time. God's gone ahead. He's preparing a way. He's opening up his purpose for Ruth and Naomi because they decided to turn home and to put their trust, your God will be my God. We're coming back. Uh, to cut a long story short, or not to make a short story too long, Boaz uh, is really kind to her. He's really interested in her. There's something going on here, a bit of, of chemistry going on, and he, he makes her a, a meal. He, he invites her to come with the others, and they share a meal together. That's not a, a, a normal thing. It's not a in, a, in that kind of culture, in a meal is very important about embracing and, and welcoming. And uh, he promises to look after her. So far, so good. And Ruth is a bit surprised. Why is the business leader, why is the boss from the big city in Bethlehem taking such notice and such interest in me? He seems to quite like me. <laughs> why? And he says, she says to him, Why? Why are you taking notice of me? Verse 10. At this she bowed down with her face to the ground. She exclaimed, Why have I found such favor in your eyes? Why such interest in me? Because I am a foreigner. 
Now, what had Boaz already been told? He had already been told that Ruth was the Moabite. Yes, in verse 6, the foreman replied, she is the Moabitess. The foreman might just have said, think about how the language works in the culture. Moaz, Moab was the sexually perverted, child-sacrificing nation where the people of God should never go. Think how it reads, oh yes, Ruth, she's the prostitute from that Soho bar. That's how it reads. That's how a Jewish reader would have, would have, would have heard it. A bit like in, in Romania or other cultures when, when, when different ethnicities are, are, are spoken of in a vulgar way because they attach particular behavior to them. Boaz takes interest and therefore Ruth is so surprised. Why? Why? I'm, I'm a foreigner. I'm this Moabite woman. You should despise me. And, and yet you seem to be quite kind of, well, hey, who's this Ruth? You seem to be quite gentle and caring along with it. And, and kind of, I seem to have touched your heart. Why is it? Boaz replied, I've been told all about what you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband how you left your father and mother and your homeland and came to live with a people you did not know before. May the Lord repay you for what you have done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. I know, I know that it looks like most men are only interested in curves. But actually, at a much deeper level, men are looking for character in a woman. And I dare say, women should be looking for the same. And Boaz says, I've seen something of your character. Ruth would have been surrounded by people in that field who knew she was the Moabitess. She's the one from Soho. Boaz didn't simply see what she was. He saw what she will be and who she is already becoming. So important. So important. Men... Look for a woman of character. Assuming you haven't got a woman, that is. Look for a woman of character. Don't swap. Okay, swapping's not on the agenda. And if your woman hasn't got character, don't nudge her now. Wait for the car on the way home. Women, you'll see that Ruth hangs out for Boaz because she sees in him a man of character. If only we built our relationships on such solid foundations. And so there we go. Naomi goes home. Uh, Ruth goes home to Naomi, sorry. And uh, Naomi says, how did it go? And Ruth tells her all about the kindness of Boaz. Verse 20, the Lord bless him, Naomi said. He has not stopped showing his hesed is hesed. In chapter 1, Ruth is described as having this hesed, this loving kindness. In chapter 2, Boaz is described as having this hesed. This could be a match made in heaven. The Lord bless him, Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, he's not stopped showing this kindness to the living and the dead. That man is our close relative. He is one of our kinsmen redeemed. Wow, says Ruth, essentially, reading into the text. He, he, he's part of our wider family. This is amazing. I just went to, his, to any field and it happened to be his field and you wouldn't believe it. He turned up and then by the end of the morning he invited me for lunch and then by the end of the day he said, look, stay, work only in my field. I'll look after you, I'll protect you. This is amazing. It's like God's gone ahead of us. Maybe he has. So Ruth stayed close, verse 23, 
That's what you do when you see God at work, huh? Yeah? Stay close. Stay close. Well, how would it turn out? Started off well. Naomi uh, would come back. Ruth and Boaz, uh, uh, well, I don't know. What's about to happen? Well, actually, nothing happened for a few weeks. He was a typical bloke. He made a good start, but didn't quite follow through. About six weeks go by, and we don't know what happened. But the mother-in-law is getting impatient. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. The mother-in-law hatches a plan. Now, I don't know how that makes you instinctively feel when your mother-in-law hatches a plan. Beware. There was good reason to beware of this plan too. Verse 1 of chapter 3. One day, Naomi, her mother-in-law, said, we've been doing this for long enough, basically. Verse 2. Is not Boaz... What the flip's Boaz doing? I thought he was hitting on you. Is not Boaz, with whose servant girls you have been, a kinsman of ours? Why isn't he getting on with it? Why doesn't he fancy you? Why doesn't he want to get married? Tonight he will be winnowing barley on the threshing floor. Verse 3, wash and perfume yourself. It's never a good day when your mother-in-law says, wash and perfume yourself, is it, ladies? And put on your best clothes. Then go down to the threshing floor, but don't let him know you are there until he has finished eating and drinking. Never get between a man and his food. It's biblical, okay? Never get between a man and his food. It's there in the Bible. When he lies down, note the place where he is lying, then go and uncover his feet and lie down. He will tell you what to do. You bet he will. What advice? What risky advice that I could not countenance saying to a young lady. But what happens is quite beautiful. Essentially what Ruth is doing in uncovering his feet in that tradition was to say, look Boaz, uh, it felt like we had something going back there in the field. And, And maybe you've done nothing about it because I'm young and because I'm foreign, maybe you've done nothing about it because you couldn't imagine that a young girl like me could be interested in an older man like you. Boaz, I want you to know that if you would be my kinsman redeemer, I'd I'd like that. I'd like that. I'd say yes. And Boaz kind of goes, yeah. Uh, When Boaz had finished eating and drinking, was in good spirits, he went over to lie down at the far end of the grain. Ruth approached quietly, uncovered his feet, lay down. In the middle of the night, something something startled the man, and he turned and discovered a woman lying at his feet. Who are you? What an unreasonable question. I am your servant, Ruth, she said. Spread the corner of your garment. This is a sign of proposal. Spread the corner of your garment over me, since you are my kinsman redeemer. I would like you to do this. I will say yes if you choose to marry me. The Lord bless you, my daughter. This hesed is greater than that which you showed earlier. I can't believe this. You've not run after the younger men who are more good-looking and fitter than me, whether rich or poor. They have my resources as well. But you've left all them. And now, my daughter, don't be afraid. I'll do for you. I'll do for you what you ask. It would be my pleasure, my delight to marry you. Oh, but there is one problem. There is another kinsman who is nearer than I. Stay here for the night, and in the morning, if he wants to redeem, good, let him redeem. But if he's not willing, as surely as the Lord lives, I will do it. Lie here until morning. 
So she lay at his feet until morning. Test number one about whether the bloke that you think might be the right one for you is the right one for you, assuming you haven't got one yet. Test number one is this. Will he fix it? Will he fix it? Will he take responsibility? Will he fight for it? If your man doesn't fight much, he might not be the man for you. Men, we're very passive. We're very passive. It's the death to our relationships. Will Boaz fight? Naomi, as we'll see in a few verses later, Naomi uh, believes that Boaz will fight. He'll sort it out. And she says that when Ruth gets back. Second test is, will he wait for you? It's the threshing floor. Nobody knows they're there. It's late at night. It's cold. What does any man want in those moments? Will he wait for you? The Bible says love is patient. If he tells you he loves you, but he will not wait, then he loves himself and only wants you. Very important distinction. Test number three, will he be respectful of you? When morning came, nothing had happened, but I said, look, go early, get back home into town. Let's not let any questions be raised about our wrongdoing. You see, a Christian couple sometimes, I think, struggle with this. It's not just about what you do, but it's about how it looks. Living in a godly way, living with integrity, is about how it looks. When you leave late, it's about how it looks. When you go away together in a particular way, it's about how it looks. And so he respected her uh, her dignity and he respected her character that was known throughout the town. Boaz was kind of saying, you wait till I get back to town, the the boys will be amazed at this. Everyone talks about what a cracking woman you are. So then Ruth gets home. What's Naomi been doing all night? No? No idea? If you sent your daughter-in-law to go and lie at the feet of an older man out in the country and said, do whatever, what would you have been doing all night? Pacing up and down, praying. And so when Ruth finally gets home, having been out all night, gets in in the morning, Naomi has this incredibly profound question to ask Ruth. The first thing she says is, how did it go? I thought that was funny. How did it go? What happened there on the threshing floor? What happened? And uh, Ruth tells the story. The very next morning, uh, because Naomi said she was confident of Boaz's character, that Boaz will sort it out. So beginning of chapter 4, Boaz gets up in the morning, he's got to fix this. He wants Ruth, he wants to marry, he wants to redeem her. He'll buy the land, he'll take her as his wife, he'll look after Naomi. He sent back some barley for uh, Naomi. So he's going to sort it out, he's going to fix it. He's a man on a mission. He goes to the gate, the, the town court, and he gathers the elders around, enough that he needs to make a judgment. And then he finds the man who is the true kinsman redeemer, the Mr. Nobody. He's, his name isn't mentioned, who seems to be completely clueless about what's going on. And Boaz says, look, you're the kinsman redeemer here. You can buy the land. Do you want it? The bloke says, yeah, I'll have some land. I could do with some land. Then Boaz says, but there's an older woman that comes with the land. She calls herself bitter. Don't think she'll be any problem, though. I'm sure she'll be fine. And she's got a daughter-in-law, Ruth the Moabitess, the prostitute from Soa. I think it'll just be fine. Take the land and have the women. And he's, no. I, 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 my, my life's complicated enough. I, I'll, I'll ruin my inheritance. I, I can't do this. Boaz, could you do this? Boaz, yeah, yeah, I'll do this. Beaming like a Cheshire cat. And so he marries Ruth. Oh, I thought at least that would have got a... Woo, that was, a, that was nice, wasn't it? Oh, that was nice. Oh, marries Ruth. 
He marries Ruth. And uh, uh, on their wedding night, uh, Ruth conceives. That's pretty good by anybody's standards. And there she gives birth to a son. And they call him Obed. And the picture is left in verse 15. Uh, He will renew your life and sustain you in your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you and who is better to you than seven sons has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child, verse 16 of chapter 4, laid him in her lap and cared for him. The women living there said, Naomi has a son and they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Who was the father of? Who was the father of? Who was the father of? The father of? The father of? Jesus. Jesus. This Moabite woman finds her way into the family tree of Jesus the great Redeemer. If she found a way in, then all of us can. And that's the story of Ruth. That as you journey towards God, he will be at work. And if you act honorably, with integrity, you live by hesed, the loving kindness that comes from heaven, the God of heaven will work it out. And so they married, and literally they lived happily ever after. I don't know who you are in the story. I don't know where you are in the story. But there is one who's come to redeem And maybe for the first time, you need to go, I need that. I need that. Maybe for the first time, you need to say, I've got to get out of this place, Moab. I've got to head. I've got to head back. Maybe you need to say, I've got to seal the deal. I've been faffing around with this for ages now. I've got to go to the kinsman redeemer and say, look, if you'll have me, I'm in. And the kinsman redeemer will throw his cloak over you and welcome you in. Be quiet for a moment. Maybe some of us have realized this morning we've ended up in Moab, it got a bit tough, and we walked out. Maybe in a fit of peak, we walked out. We said, I've had enough of this. Surely there's something better. And we ended up in Moab. And we're slowly dying there. And God's calling you back. Maybe you're like Naomi. You're angry, you're bitter, you're frustrated. But it's all bottled up. I tell you, it's time to, to be honest with where you are. It was not a bitter and angry Naomi that held that child. And you'll only be ready for the blessing when you deal with the anger and the bitterness that's inside your heart. Speak it out. Invite others in. Invite God in. And maybe you need to know and to feel today the kinsman redeemer throwing his cloak over you and saying, I'll work this out. I'll rescue you. I'll save you. I'll buy the land. You can be safe with me. You're in my hands. 
I'll work it out. Maybe you picked up a few things about what it might be to be a godly Ruth. To be looking for the godly man. Maybe you picked up a few things about being the godly man. Whether you're married or single. These are truths for our lives. For the God who weaves his purpose as we trust him.